Enjoy this cool and short listicle provided by Dr. Arthur Vesluz from his book, Magic and Mysticism, based on philosopher Hans Jonas's existentialist depiction of Gnosticism. Here it is. 1. A Hostile Cosmos Gnostic Antipathy to Nature 2. A Demiurge or Ignorant Creator Responsible for Botch Creation and Hostile to Human Spiritual Awakening 3. Dualism Opposition between the realm of light and the realm of matter 4. An Elaborate Mythology 5. Myths concerning Sophia, wisdom, and her fall and restoration. 6. Belief in a hidden God, not the Demiurge. 7. Difficulty of spiritual progress due to the Archons or other hostile powers in the cosmos. Ignorance of the inherent fallen human condition. 8. Existence of the Ogdoad, or eight spheres, including seven planetary spheres, and possibility of their transcendence. 9. The necessity of Gnosis, or direct spiritual knowledge from the realm of light. 10. A revealer or redeemer figure to show the way to the realm of light. Valentinus believed the world we live in was created by a cruel god, and slightly stupid. A god that will send you plagues, or require sacrifices, or destroy Babylon. He wasn't wrong about that. The bastard had a mean temper. Humans can escape this world, and return to the real one. The kingdom. And for that, you needed to achieve the Gnosis, which could be described as true knowledge. Welcome, everybody, to Aeon Byte, specifically AB Live. I am Miguel Connor, your host, your pompadus of Gnosis, and glad to see everybody on this Friday. Uh, we have a very special show. I hope you enjoyed this little intro. In fact, our guest once asked at a, at a conference, are we still living in a Hans Jonas world? And I'd say we kind of still are in some way or another, and that is April DeConnick. April, thank you very much for coming. Glad to be and here. Always awesome to see you. And with us, too, we've got the Moondog. Vans fans, how are you doing? I'm fine and looking forward to the dispelling of the fallacy, the no true Gnostic or no true Christian. <laughs> Except for me. No, just kidding. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I have the Gnosis and it's $19.99 a month if you want that Gnosis. That's right. But awesome. And I see already people in the chat room. As always, uh, if you have a question for April, this is your chance. Please super chat them so we can separate them and get to thee and i think you should have questions because april released her book comparing christianities an introduction to early christianity i read it and it was amazing and i will be rereading it and getting data and uh, insights and scholarship for years to come just as i did with the gnostic new age so i didn't think april could top the gnostic new age <laughs> but she did because this is Wow. The theory of everything. It's not just <laughs> the, the history of Christianity and Gnosticism and all our favorite characters and villains from Irenaeus to Polycarp to Valentinus to Basilides. Everything is there. So thank you for making it happen. Was this a hard book to create or tell us about <laughs> writing it? Because Wow, it was. It was really, I, when I took the project on, I didn't think it was going to be so hard. Um, I thought, oh yeah, I know these folks. This should be this should this, this should be okay to write. Could do it in two or three years, and I, I, I restarted the book three times. And by restart, I don't mean just like having written one chapter. I mean having written four or five chapters, and um, just had to scrap it and start over. So yeah, it was really a, a book that took about seven years to to write from the time that I, you know, first started a project. No, I didn't so much into it. Yeah, so and part, part of the issue for me was 
how do you tell the Christian story, the early Christian story, um, and include all the literature that's not hasn't really been included in that story before, except as as sort of like a, a, a side reference to an oh by the way this is the material of the heretics. So like how did I integrate all of that into a new Christian narrative? That was my difficulty. Yeah, yeah, indeed, and it it shouldn't even be this way, right? Because I mean. In ancient times, Irenaeus and uh, Justin Martyr, I'm sure they had sleepless nights worrying about Marcion and Valentinus. They were on their radar. They were part of the conversation. Yes, yes. It wasn't something they just went to, you know, on Sunday and like, oh, these Gnostics are causing problems or something. Right, right. Yes, there there was a lot of interaction and engagement. And really, I, I mean, I learned a lot by writing this book because I guess I just didn't realize how so many of these figures were all in Rome at the same time. And I mean, that that world would have been a small world at that time. They all had to know each other. They all had to be talking to each other, sharing, sharing their ideas, arguing with each other and so forth. So. Oh, indeed, indeed. And yeah, as you write, uh, this is probably the first attempt to write a comprehensive history of the first Christians in a pluralistic right. movement. So the people, so I guess the main question that I uh, would ask you is, how did Christianity start? And I think, uh, I mean, before you've got David Bracken, he talks about the three theories that we know, right? That we have the 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 official propaganda, the apostles, and they spread the word. Then right. you have the sort of it goes out in the Gnostics and Marcians kind of branch out in the second century. And the other one is the horse race theory that all these groups like as soon as <laughs> Jesus was crucified, they're running towards the Roman emperor to like, hey, we're the best, we're the best, and we're the only one. How did and then, but other scholars like uh, David Litt was saying we can't talk about Christianity in the first century. It's something we have to talk right. about in the second century. Yeah. What what how, what uh, stance do you take? Yeah, so I that was one of the issues that I had with rewriting the book so many times is that I, I was starting wanting to write some sort of linear narrative that again, went like from Jesus, you know, onward uh, to Nicaea. And it's just impossible to do because the evidence just doesn't support that linear narrative. And when we realize that that linear narrative actually was created by the um, the early Catholics to talk about their own history and to give that history legitimacy, um, then we just see that, you know, that's just one story. And as a historian, I, I have to deal with evidence that I know for sure first. And I know for sure Paul's letters. So that kind of gives me what a glimpse of what Christianity is in around 50. Um, the kind of arguments and things that were going on. And then about 150, I start getting like information like that's historical information that I can place a person, that I can place a text and that kind of thing. And so I had to really start in 150. And I had to talk about what was going on in 150 in the historical record, and then kind of go forward from there. And then after I was able to lay out what Christianity looked like in those few generations there up to like, say, origin, um, it that might help us to understand that kind of dead period that we know so little about in terms of historical record, which would be from Paul to about 150. So about 100 years of kind of shadowy, murky <laughs> historical knowledge <laughs> that, that scholars have filled in with stuff. But like, are we filling that incorrectly? Yeah. And also, I mean, we isn't it the the issue that people like Paul and the first followers of Jesus, they wouldn't have seen themselves as, there was no Christianity. They were followers of Jesus in exactly. a very fluid and fragmented Jewish religions, Egyptian, Samaritan, Gal they were, it was very different than we think. They didn't just walk out and say, we are Christians. Right, right. Yeah, and I struggled with that language in the textbook. Um, and so I did give some explanation there. There is really no Christianity until the second century. Um, as we would think of 
a sub a, a a religion that was was starting to distinguish itself from Judaism. Okay, prior to that, Christianity was just a Jewish sectarian movement. Think of it as a Jewish messianic movement of the first century. Um, Jesus was their Messiah, and um, <clears throat> according to Paul and his letters, um, the the Christians were of various opinions, so the, the this new Jewish sectarian movement on how to bring Gentiles into the fold, how to bring them into the people of Israel. And um, you have kind of maximalist folks who are saying, you know, you got to follow all the rules of the uh, Jewish scripture of the Torah. You have ones that were kind of in the middle on it. Well, there's some things the Gentiles have to do, but they don't do everything. And then there were people like Paul that said, you know, Gentiles don't have to do anything that once the spirit of God inf infuses them through baptism, you know, like they're part of the people of Israel. And that's, that's that. So those three group, those sort of kind of think of as, as opinions and groupings, I think is where we can trace the plurality of Christianity too. Oh, for sure. In fact, I, I do have some visuals for those watching on video here and in Rockfin and other places. So I, I got Comparing Christianities by April DeConnick. And so people oh, will go back to this, but so people could see here are the categories, like you said, the minimalists, followers who thought it was not necessary to burden the Gentiles right. with observing the law, maximalists, followers who demanded circumcision and follow the law, and moderates who are kind of in between, you don't have to maybe not get circumcised, but come on, just follow some of the Hebrew Bible, right? So those those three were three important trage trajectories, if you will. Right. Right. And then, of course, for the audience, uh, again, great book, but and there's a lot of great charts. Everything is charted with the arrows, so you can <laughs> see for yourself and do your own uh, your own visual or. Uh, to, to understand how these things moderated. And the other one that's great, if you want to talk about this or anything else, but that is, yeah, you take the approach of a family resemblance and you've got Xenothis, Transtheus, and Yahweh. Could you tell the audience a little bit, a little bit yeah. about these three groups? Sure. So the other thing that seems to really be playing as a factor within this Jewish sectarian movement is um, different. These different uh, Christians reading the Genesis story, and um, or reading the the Jewish scriptures more broadly, and so their interpretation of these texts uh, had a wide range. There was a difference of opinion on what these texts meant. You have and, and they kind of that what ends up happening is that these reads and start to form if you will social groups of interpreters like interpret of interpretation so you have marcion who's reading the jewish scripture and he's reading what he has the evangelion the gospel and the 10 letters of paul he has comparing them and he determines that that jesus spoke of a new god who was a hidden God that nobody knew about before that's from another world altogether, didn't create our world, isn't the, the Yahweh of the Genesis story. Um, he, he understands that to be the Jewish God. Um, and he forms a, a church uh, around this theology. And um, I call them xenotheists. Uh, these were, were uh, people who believed in an alien God. And then um, the transtheists are your uh, folks who are reading the Genesis story, again, um, more along platonic lines or middle platonic lines and understanding the demiurge there to be Yahweh. And that there is a transcendent God uh, that is also um, kind of the initiator of our universe. I mean, he's the initiator of life and all the divine beings. And um, so these, this would be the transtheists. And these folks, um, they, they have all different reads of the Genesis story. They're forming lots of multiple little social groups, as you have listed here. Um, and uh, like Valentinus would be in here as well. Right. And then you have the Yahwists. And these are the folks who read the Genesis story more along the lines of the, the way it's read traditionally in Judaism, with the Yahweh God being the creator of the universe. And he's the sole God, and he's the one that they're worshiping. So... And that, that's really where you're getting the apostolic Catholics, you're getting the Ebionites from there, a lot of the Thomas Christians are there, uh, and so forth. 
So Marcion didn't believe in the transcendent God or the God above God, or he, he just thought that our God was an alien or, you know. In, so he uh, believes in a transcendent entity, but that transcendence is so total. It's a God from another universe. So that uh, God, so he didn't have any, he didn't start a life here. Yeah. I think uh, what the, separates him, as I understand is, for example, with the Gnostics, there's a transcendent God, but we have the divine spark. We have something right. from him. We co-share right. this essence. With Marcion, we are worse. Uh, we uh, are, and this God will kind of come and by grace say, hey, you want to live? Right. <laughs> come with me if you want to live like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. And, and I then think- he'll drop you. He'll drop the divine spark in your I soul. see. No, he doesn't do that. It's actually resurrection. So when you wow. die, he takes your soul because he's ransomed it. He's bought it from the devil, or not the devil. I'm sorry. He's bought it from uh, <laughs> from the Jewish God, and he then transforms you into a spiritual being. So he's reading Paul there, right? I mean, that's how he's interpreting Paul in First Corinthians 15. Exactly. So. That's- and you say that's really the first time in history we have this concept. Yeah, I, I mean, I can't find it anywhere else, this idea that there's a couple things Marcion's really interesting about. So it's this idea that there's some God that's not connected to our universe at all, that that's new. And then also, um, oh, shoot, I've lost my thought. Uh, yeah, what are the xenotheists, what are some of his innovations that? Yeah, his innovation. So, um, well, he also sees this God as a God of complete love and grace, which is also very interesting. I mean, he has no capricious characteristics at all. As you know, I mean, most gods in antiquity have capricious things about them, you know. So that that's interesting. The other thing is that he also detaches the God from any ethnic group or nation. So you see here something, I think, again, really innovative. Yeah, I mean, he was really, I mean, as I think Stefan Heller said, he was just a great logician. I mean, yeah. he's the one who said, we need a Bible. Nobody had thought of that in 150 <laughs> right. years. Yes, like, I should it, say that, too. I think that he did create the first New Testament, and I think he probably called it that as well. So I think that that was his innovation, and I talk about why I think that in the in the in the book. Yeah, so, but so you would say Marston really doesn't fall under again. He's nowhere near Valentinus, or no. He's kind of his own category for sure. He's his own category. He would be what I would call a biblical theologian. He he finds he finds his theology by reading the Bible and interpreting it. Um, Valentinus is uh, more of a systematic theologian where he wants a, a kind of a philosophical system to explain everything, and then he'll read the Bible to kind of support that system. Um, and... Uh, his system's very Egyptian, right? So it's no. both Middle Platonic and Egyptian. So he has all the hermaphrodite gods. He's got the Agdawad. You know, he's got the, basically the Atum or Amun. God is the the primal father, the forefather, the, the snake that's in the water and that, you know, stands up on the mound or, you know, something like that. So... Yeah, I mean he's he's amazing because when I read your book, it's like he he doesn't leaves no uh, stone unturned. I mean, he even talks about Jesus did not poop. He had the perfect body where nothing was wasted. If you drink water, it was digested. He was just that's it. I mean, he covers all bases. Yeah, and you know, um, you know, later we we learn from uh, later Catholics that um, Valentinus is attributed with the idea of the Trinity. Mm-hmm. He's the first one. He wrote a book on the Trinity. Um, so, I mean, the, the guy was, uh, you know, again, like Marcion, I think there was a lot of innovative thinking going on in, in Valentinus's work. Very much. Or his idea of, um, I, lo- I even have love the graph because you talk about, well, how does he figure out Jesus, the son, right. the human? And he's like, well, Sophia fell and she remembered the father in the Pleroma and she gave birth to the Aeon Christ. And the Aeon Crisis, like, you know, typical teenager, oh, this place sucks. I'm going to the Pleroma, right? better video games. And right, so right. He, he leaves his poor mom, his teen mom. So then Sophia has like a shadow. The Demiurge comes out. He creates the psychic Christ. And 
this very yeah. cool family. Yeah, very, very neat. And again, very much a systematic theologian. He wants to explain, you know, the whole nine yards. And interesting to me, he chooses to do so using mythological language rather than philosophical. Exactly. Brilliant. Yeah. And the other, I think you touched upon this. Let me bring up the slide again, too, so we can better understand. Okay, I got this. Then we have... uh, Okay. They all have, you also talk about there's always a way, a demiurgy, how they they dealt with this creator intermediary God. Right. Yeah. So in the book, what I, what I suggest is that these Christian families were all using the same patterns, but they were kind of like um, uh, mixing them up as you would in a jazz comp- composition. And I think if you can think of early Christianity as a jazz composition or early Christians as jazz composers, then you will under you, then you get it. Um, so uh, they're all sharing the Jewish scriptures. So they've got a lot of imagery and stuff from there. Um, they're, they're all sharing middle Platonism. So there's always going to be materials from there. They're going to be using as well. And they come up with these kind of patterns of the way that they think about things like Christology or demiurgy, um, a theology and so forth, that then they um, kind of uh, take bits and pieces and create systems with their own, like, like an individual Christian system. Yeah. Yeah. And so, for example, the Sethians, their demiurgy, they would be, Villain, ignorant, impaired, right? But then Marcion would say, well, justice too. Right. And so they're kind of taking characteristics based on the readings of the Hebrew Bible and Plato. Exactly. Yep. The other two is also, again, going against the grain of, you know, the Catholic Church or the Greek Orthodox Church of this, like, harmonious thing. You, You talk about how different religious movements emerge. Right. We have consolidated movement, reform movement, secessionist movement, innovative movement, chiastic movement, counter movement. That's how these Christian groups are starting to move as they evolve through the second century. Yeah, and I think it's really important for us to understand that each Christian movement has its own origin. Right. Each movement has its own emergence. And we need to understand that because then it will tell us who they're related to or who they're responding to or who they consider to be their kind of competitors and so forth. And so I think this is a much easier way to, to think about the apostolic Catholic church is really in response to Marcy and begin consolidating uh, churches. So Hegesippus is going around in the like, you know, one sixties um, to the different churches and he's recording what ones uh, are, are, are thinking like we do in Rome, you know, what, ones are in our network and saying these prayers and by the way here's our prayers you guys should be saying these you know like he's writing this like a uh, little um uh, kind of report uh, about about this so there's some consolidation going on um and that's a really powerful social position to be from to get a lot of churches that are already out there and operating to kind of come into your network come in under your bishops um and like you know toe the line um and so then a reformed movement, uh, maybe you it would be somebody like Valentinus who starts out maybe wanting to reform uh, what he sees going on in the Roman church or Christianity at large. He wants it to be more of a grace-based uh, religion. It uh, doesn't happen, so he... Um, then becomes a secessionist movement where he leaves. Um, he was never exiled, uh, nothing that ever says he was, but he, Tertullian says he chose to leave mm-hmm. and start his own thing. So, yeah, and, and so forth. Yeah, as you write, April, uh, unlike Marcion, uh, when talking about Valentinus, unlike Marcion, God had to be intuited and could not be known intellectual. So it's... Mm-hmm. Uh, He's bringing, as you talk about in the Gnostic New Age, and you talk about in your book, comparing Christianity, that shamanistic quality that got, you had to experience the divine. Yep, exactly. Yeah, and and I know that there's debate in, in Scot- among scholars about, you know, whether a Valentinus was Gnostic or not based on his letter fragments. But, um, you know, Tertullian tells us outright that um, he, uh, um, that, 
uh, Valentinus taught the way through the spheres and up into the realms of the aeons. So um, I don't know. I mean, I guess we could say Tertullian didn't know what he was talking about. But I, I mean, I don't. It seems to be uh, very interesting because the language, the terminology that Tertullian uses, is quite different from what uh, you know. I don't know what we might expect. Yeah, and there is a section in your book because again, it's got to be dealt with people wanting to get rid of the term Gnosticism, and you have a, a pretty long list. Yeah. Of groups that call themselves Gnostic, the, right. the, the Nascenes, the Valentinians, the Sethians, uh, Marcelina. I mean, on yeah. and on, there were groups that were embracing this idea. And, and of you can see that it's also it's a transconfessional term that they're using, right? It's not, they don't mean like there's one Gnostic group somewhere. That's not what they're saying, right? They're using the word to mean something like, we're the spiritual Christians. Our group is the real spiritual Christians because we have the real way to get back up into this transcendent realm. So, yeah. But then somebody like, I think, Clement of Alexandria would say Gnostic too, but well, he was kind of Gnostic. He had some, you know, the, yeah. the, the <laughs> he created a Gnostic level for the Catholic Christians. It's <laughs> really interesting. Yeah. Well, the yeah. cost of not being sainted. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's partially Platonist, right? Oh, definitely. Lot. Yeah. Yeah. All those guys from Egypt, they were into... They were into some very cool vibes. And I do talk quite a bit about uh, both Clement and Origen in, the, in, I think, Chapter 11 in the in the textbook as well. So, yeah, that conversation's all there for you. Yeah, you've got it. Yeah, again, you don't, uh, you don't uh, leave any of the great figures that became, um, well, that were part of the creation of Christianity in that wild second century and third century, too, once you bring, again, Origin, Plotinus, all those guys. Right. They're all over the place. I think uh, also um, moving to the first century, which I found fascinating, as you say, within the Jewish community, the sort of uh, seeds of, of classical Gnosticism, you've got this fusion between the Ophites and the Barbarians. Bellites. Could you tell the audience about that? Yeah. That's yeah. Yeah. So I've had to think a lot about the Sethian category um, that, and I'm not sure. I'm still not sure what I actually think about it, (laughs) but what I, what I'm kind of moving toward is the idea that there, that the Ophite myth was quite early. It was a, it was kind of a a counterweight to to read the the Genesis story, and it was became kind of popular and it went viral. I mean, people people were referencing it and using it, and then they would develop kind of their own version of it, if you will, when they wrote wrote down you know whatever text they were they're working on or composing. Um, and so, the the other. Uh, mythology is the Barbalite mythology. That seems to be some kind of Egyptian mythology again. That's that's developing where the the Ophite mythology seems to be really a rereading of the Genesis story um, and trying to understand um, uh, creation from that perspective. So you have you know God, and then you have man, and then you have the Son of Man, and then you have the Son of Son of Man, and it all comes from the way they're reading the Genesis story, where the Barbalite. Uh, mythology is more of a Egyptian mythology of a triad, the father, the mother, and the son, and this sort of uh, the way they auto-generate and so forth. And what some of the the texts we call Sethian texts seem to be doing is, is axing the Ophite theology, so and replacing it with the Barbalite theology and then having continuing along with the Genesis story reading with the kind of Yahweh God being the bad dude and so forth. So that that's what I can make of the, the situation. For the audience. So the Ophite myth, it deals with the garden and the snake is not the yeah. bad guy usually. And then it yeah. deals with the son of man. Yeah, it has a different theology than the Barbalite, and and it's a different theology actually from the Sethian text. Most of them, right, you right. see it prominently actually in Eugnostus. You could check that ch- text out if you're interested. 
You know, so is the bless from the Nagamari Library yeah. for you for you cats out there. You can access it at gnosis.org or get your copy. So, uh, um, what about um, I'm trying to so remember, I think John Turner tried to make the case for the secret book of John. He said, you know, Jesus is talking to the apostle John and uh. He uh, tells them the story, and it starts with the creation myth, like you said, the triad, the invisible spirit. And then suddenly you go into Genesis, and he said, this was probably a fusion of the two theologies, yeah. right? I, yeah. I think he backtracked a little bit. I don't remember. Yeah, no, I think that I think that's correct. I think it is a fusion, and and probably the whoever's making this fusion what was seems to be some kind of uh, maybe Barbalite group that then is bringing in the Sethian re- or the, I'm sorry the Ophite reading of the Genesis story, and uh, they have particular rituals that they're practicing uh, the five seals for instance. Um, uh, they have particular um, names of the baptizing angels. And I, I imagine that that's all coming from the Barbalite tradition. And and also I, your idea that okay, we're moving down to the fourth century with the uh, Platonizing Sethians and scholars assume, say, well, at you mean some the third, point. third century? Yeah, third you mean century, sorry. Yeah, yeah. When they're de- we're the, we're the dealing with Plotinus and fighting with them, right? But uh, it talks about most scholars think well, they were starting to get kicked out of churches, so Jesus is starting to be dropped, and they're becoming just sort of pagan or Neoplatonic. But you think yeah. that another good theory is that they were already Platonists <laughs> who just yeah. adopted some of the Barbellite theology. Yeah. Yeah, so um, if you go back and read Plotinus um, and what Porphyry tells us about the Christians who were they or who were in in Plotinus's seminars, um, he understands them to be Platonists who are he- like heretical Platonists. They're not they're not following Plato like they should, and um, and he talks about them carrying around books with them. Um, so they have some of the books that we have from Nakamadi that we typically would attribute to Sethians. And so scholars have, have said, oh, well, that must mean these guys are some kind of Sethians. But he also tells us that, that they had a, a book from someone that Tertullian tells us was a Valentinian. <laughs> so they look to me like they're kind of philosophy type people they're kind of esoteric christians who are collecting um esoteric materials and then they're trying to create a new kind of philosophy like a christian new christian philosophy from it so that that's what i'm thinking right now miguel no, no, it makes yeah, it makes perfect sense. It's just yeah, so that's consistent with, with the way people develop religions, even in the modern time, right? All exactly. the Christian sects and the different split-offs and everything. I think you got something there. Yeah, I yeah. Uh, so th- I'm actually working on a, on a manuscript, a book now called "The Esoteric Jesus," and I want to look at how how early Christianity formed within this um, space of esoteric thought. Um, I, this is just something we haven't, we have not looked at yet and it really needs to be done. So, yeah, for sure. I mean, going all the way back to Paul and he <laughs> talks all about the, the hidden God, right. And then, uh, we get, uh, um, the gospel of Mark, boom, bingo. I mean, we've got secrecy is like throughout, uh, Christian history and the way these groups are using the secrets to kind of legitimize their new movement is super fascinating. Yeah, I don't think people realize how, I don't want to say Gnostic, the Gospel of Mark is, but you've got secret, special knowledge, you've got the devil ruling all the kingdoms, it's it's very initiatory in mystery religion and Gnostic, even from the get-go. <laughs> I don't know if I go that that far, but it, there's something going on there, Miguel. And I, I think that whoever wrote this text, it wasn't called Mark, it was called the Gospel of Jesus Christ which is a line from Paul's letters that Paul was revealed the gospel of Jesus Christ. (laughs) And I think the author was attempting to write what he thought was the gospel revealed to Paul. So super fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. But again, a lot going on. And 
do you feel it's almost impressive that this small religion from let's say AD 30 or so to 150 was still kicking, right? Without yeah. really any big money behind it, if you know what I mean. Big temples, emperors, you know, here and there, but no shekels. And maybe that's one of the reasons why it was more successful is it relied on the household. You know, so in terms of conversion, um, you know, when you when a person converted, the whole household converted, right? And um, yeah, so that's a way to get members. Yeah, and at the beginning, it was very uh, open to women, slaves. Yeah. You know, the people yeah. like like the cult of Dionysus. It was for the common folk, and they right. really grabbed onto it. So right. Good stuff. <laughs> and uh, speaking of esoteric Jesus, uh, yeah, because it's a way of how, excuse me, how you approach Jesus, right? There's one way where we think, you know, Jesus came so he would die for our sins or ransom our souls. But then there's the other Jesus where he's giving us special knowledge, right? Mark, yeah. the Gnostics. Yeah. He's giving us, uh, and even... Some say, well, the Gospel of Thomas, Jesus is there to give us this special information, but uh, maybe upsetting some neo-Gnostics, you're pretty, you're pretty uh, decisive saying, well, the Gospel of Thomas is just not Gnostic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it, it comes from a Yaoist group, I think. <laughs> <You think? laughs> um, but it, that doesn't mean, however, Miguel, that that a text can't become Gnostic in its use, right? Like if if an if a person picks it up and wants to read it in that direction, they create a whole Gnostic imaginary based on it, then you have an a neo-Gnostic um um uh, moment, if you will. I mean, you have it, it. That that's what happens. I mean, the same with it, any te any text from antiquity. I mean, Genesis is an agnostic text, but it becomes a gnostic text in the reading of it by particular people. So, a lot of the work that I want to do as I move forward is thinking about how that happens. How is it that we, um, through interpretation, uh, create um, a, a gnostic imaginary, a new, brand new one? Right? How does that spawn? This is what's happening in modernity. Yeah. Right. And so, depending on what text you pick and how you read them, <laughs> you create all different kinds of Gnostic imaginaries. And you know, some of them are are um, the ones that I would say are in, like full of light and good, and other ones can take kind of a dark turn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Same as it. Yeah, like today, you've got people with like Jesus who's white and has a shotgun. You know, and we can go back to the Nassines. The preacher is changing like uh, the the Odyssey and Hermes yeah. to make it more like Jesus. Like, right. Oh, that's Jesus. Exactly. So, or Addis is Jesus. It's like, right. yeah, it's what we do. So don't worry, people, with the Gospel of Thomas. It may not mention Aeons or Sophia, but Christian uh, Syrian <laughs> Christianity is pretty mystic anyway. Yeah, it is. It is. And that's what I argue in my books on Thomas is that we're dealing with a a kind of um, almost a precursor to Eastern Orthodoxy there, um, where you have the mystical life being emphasized. No, makes makes perfect sense. Well, for everybody who's joining us, April DeConnick is here discussing comparing Christianities, uh, <laughs> a, a tour, a fascinating tour of how Christianity came about. Vince, uh, any super chats you want to tackle or question? Yes, we have some. Uh, first, uh, Francis of Sophia Klatt said, speaking of Catholic versions of history, tradition holds that the Apostle Peter was the first pope, which I believe is not true. So who was the official <laughs> first pope? <laughs> we have no idea. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, you know, when your records, I mean, the records weren't there. I mean, they, the, the, the early Catholics had to kind of construct that themselves. So who knows? And then, of course, they, they're choosing Peter um, because they, they – understand their tradition to be apostolic that is going back to the 12 apostles not apostolic going back to paul but going back to the 12 apostles is how they originally yeah. kind of formed that whole idea yeah and then that idea is starting to form about 150 okay 
Yeah, I was going to ask you, well, who was living in the Vatican in the first century? <laughs> no, <really didn't. laughs> it was an Airbnb, Vance. They were renting it out at the time. Oh, boy. So moving on, uh, Polaris23 wanted to know, if you could speak to the difference between Steiner, you know, Rudolf Steiner's okay. eighth sphere and the Gnostic Ogdoad. Ogdoad. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't really, I don't really think that I can make a, a comparison between those two. You know, Steiner's really coming out of Theosophy and really coming out of Blavatsky's model, and she actually is relying on some Gnostic material. She reads Origin, so she knows some of that stuff. But it's like you know, we said earlier, these people are reading this material and they're taking what they want from it and they're remixing it into new systems. So, um, you know, I, I don't do the perennial quest, like trying to find like what, what does reality really look like? I'm more interested in how different, how different people create versions of reality that have meaning for them. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Like one that's fascinating and I don't mind talking about is you, you, I've been studying uh, a lot of, with Elvis and I, and I found out that he actually went to Cielo drive after the Sharon Tate murders. Cause he had this thing about really, uh, yeah, he, he had this thing about death. He was life and birth and death. But so then I started studying, restudying Charles Manson and you start reading Charles Manson. And he's talking about Abraxas and the polarities and yeah. we can leave the, and I'm like, man, he has sounded like a Gnostic, but what right. Charles Manson is doing is, He's reading Herman Hesse, who was very popular with the Beach Boys and yeah. in the 60s. Uh. Herman Hesse was a patient of Carl Jung, and Carl Jung is rereading <laughs> Basility. Yeah. So we go, <laughs> right. And so right. we have this Gnostic religion <laughs> right. in Charles Manson of all places. Right. And this is what I'm finding. And there, I, I call them alpha channels. These are, are, are people that uh, wrote things that other people rely on to then create their own Gnostic imaginaries. And sometimes they're, they're like Blavatsky. They're like um, Young, um, as you said, uh, Hess. I mean, these different, these different folks become kind of like the main generators then of new Gnostic uh, systems and ideas. Um, we're really far removed from antiquity by this time, but uh, nonetheless, you can really see um, how this uh, uh, how this thing transpires. Uh, right, so you have a lot yeah. of fun with that with your students. Yeah, and, and you have to and you have to be careful, and you have to like look through, um, can carefully kind of track what these folks were reading, what they knew about. Um, in order that as they built their systems. And what's nice about modernity is we usually can do this so that you're going to end up in the end with some kind of really big map, right? With all these like <laughs> interchanges and, uh, you know, um, intersections. And it, it will be really fascinating when, when that project really gets fully under underway. It's like a collective mind, isn't it? Yeah. You know, where it's a, a collective thought process that goes yeah. over centuries. Yeah. And I'm finding uh, the more I kind of dig into this is that a lot of intellectuals in the 60s and 70s were heavily steeped in this material. Like they were reading the Nag Hammadi texts. They were taking college courses um, from famous professors. They were reading Jonas, um, really influenced by him. Um, and they a lot of these intellectuals, you know, go on to become famous intellectuals themselves and really develop postmodern thought. And so I wonder how much of kind of the 60s counterculture and postmodern thought is actually developing out of these people's engagement with Gnostic materials. A hundred percent. It's something we have to explore. Exactly. Well, I mean, right now you have, unfortunately, have people on the right saying, ah, oh, communism, postmodernism, this comes out of Gnosticism, it's just modern. And they're, they're kind of right, but they're wrong. They're, they're right. leaning too much on Eric Vogelin. Right. Never read it. So yeah, right. there needs to be some organizing that, yeah, yeah. you're right, but you're wrong. Right. I, I'm, I'm with you, Miguel. I, I, I understand what you're saying. I've talked with my husband Wade about this a lot. And I'm like, you know, God darn, they're right on that, but they're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't quite been able to express it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed. Well, um, and got another super another? chat. Okay, yes, sure, there sure. is. 
fact, this one I can show because it came in the super chat. Um, are the Barbalites the same as the Borberites? And if so, have Epiphanius's accus accusative descriptions of their more extreme and vile rituals also been reported by others? <laughs> Uh, no, they're not the same. They're they're a different. They're they're something different. Um, we do hear about these rituals in so in uh, uh, Sophia. Uh, so they they are reported by other people. I do have a discussion of this. Let's see, where do I have that? Do I? Is it in Gnostic New Age? I think it may be. And I also have a discussion of it in my book, Holy Misogyny. So I would just point you there for you know if you want additional information either one of those sources. Okay. I had, I had a question for you, um, which was uh, uh, Josephus, who was before 150 AD. Uh, what's your take on that? I know, you know, people have uh, alleged that people added to Josephus's uh, writings, but uh, what's your take on his reflections on uh, and connections with uh, ancient Christianity? So he, he, um, yeah. So if he did, I mean, if we were to say, yes, uh, the the passages that where he talks about the followers of Christ um, actually come from him. We don't get a whole lot of information. Yeah, so, for yeah, the audience, he uh, compares him to John the Baptist. I mean, there's not a whole lot there. Yeah, it's too bad, huh? Yeah. And for the audience, uh, Asterox, uh, in our last interview or the one before, April does contend that the Gnostics were practicing some sort of sex magic. It came from the Egyptian matrix. John Turner told me in private that he believed he had no doubt, but he couldn't make a scholarly argument. But if he had to bet money or bet a cigarette, knowing him or a joint. And again, Miguel, it's not all the, it's not all the different Gnostic groups. It's, it's some Gnostic group. Yeah. yeah, and, yeah. and like Pista Sophia, those Gnostics, they, they actually don't like the practice. So they, they criticize this other, these, the, the practice. So they know about it. They know people are doing it. They criticize it. So again, different, different opinions on these practices. But again, the idea was that the, 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 the sperm, if you will, contains the, the soul and uh, the, that's being, you know, that's going to make the new baby. Right. And so if I can have a ritual where I can, um, collect that and do something to like make it ascend up into the to the realms where we want it to go, um, then that's what I should be doing. And so that's kind of the basis of that practice, I think. Yeah, and there's always reforms. I mean, remember what the the cult of Dionysus was once women partying sex and then it got reformed. They invited men, they stopped eating meat. They start, we're going to hang out in the forest, but we're going to no sex, just kind of pray to the, you know, there's always a reform here and there, <laughs> sometimes more radical than others. I think uh, another one that I wanted to bring up, which I found fascinating is, again, we're talking about Jung and Hesse and Charles Manson is <laughs> facilities themselves. Let's talk oh, to facilities. <laughs> but uh you talked that his great innovation might have been the idea of uh, creation from nothing, ex nihilo yeah. or whatever. Could you tell the audience about that one? Yeah, I mean, he's talking about it. I mean, this becomes a major, you know, a major doctrine of almost all the early Christians. I don't know where he got it from. I mean, did he pick it up from another Christian earlier on? Or is this something that, you know, he uh, worked out himself? But, I mean, it's a major part of his system. Absolutely. I mean, his system like depends on this idea. That's why I think he might have been the one to innovate it. And how I guess thinking about it and for the audience, yeah, as before it was assumed there was chaos. There yeah, was some there's form in the gods right? just yeah, right. just shape it. Even hey, Yahweh. Even yeah, even in Genesis story, like there's water, there's darkness, there's something that that's being worked on by the God, right? There's primal stuff. Um, Egyptians were like, there's invisibility, like <laughs> there, there's uh, darkness. Uh, uh, so Basility says there is nothing. <laughs> there's absolutely nothing. And that nothing is sort of like a vacuum. That's how I think of it in my mind that that will generate something as it kind of sucks stuff in. I mean, or like it's a vacuum that has that movement, right? So um, 
It's really interesting. I, I I learned a lot when I when I wrote that chapter. I didn't know a whole lot about facilities prior to writing, other than you know like what you read in Irenaeus or something. And I really um, buckled down on him because I realized that like Valentinus, he was a systematic theologian and he wanted everything to make sense. And um, so his system is even more complicated than Valentinus' system. And very yeah. philosophical. Um, he 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 seems to me to know a lot of about Stoicism. He's arguing with the Stoics, um, and he is making some pretty good arguments against them. Yeah, I love how you talk about. He's talking about how we all have sin nature, like this karma. So we'll keep reincarnating yep. because of karma. But then somebody will. What about Jesus? It's like right. well, Jesus had. <laughs> He has the potential of sin nature, yep. so he does. So he does. He can suffer, but he doesn't sin. It's very exactly. smart. He's very yeah. Smart. No, it was. It's beautiful. <laughs> really, I mean, a lot of what he said, yeah. And he yeah. comes up with something I'd never heard of because studying Gnosticism all these years, I'm pretty much I toe the party line, you know, Heilig, psychic, nomadic, Heilig, psychic, nomadic. And he's like, whoa, dude, you're introducing something else. Don't do this to me. (laughs) Philia substance. What is this, April? (laughs) I think he didn't like the Valentinians. (laughs) So he said, we're better than you guys because we got like God substance. Like he wanted to distinguish Panuma, which, the Valentinians was were was argue, they were arguing that was God's substance, right? He wanted to argue that no, that's not yet quite God's substance. That there's a fourth thing, <laughs> and that's uh, filio or kinship substance. So it's it's birth from God Himself. So it's not from Sophia, this lesser aeon, but it's birth from God Himself. Ooh, the God is love theory. Yeah. <laughs> And how do we get some of this philia stuff, us little humans down here, April? How would <laughs> you either have it or you don't. You can't get it. <laughs> You're either born with it or not, Miguel. Uh, predestination. <laughs> oh, good old Basilides. Yeah. And you talk about Basilides being with the Stoics, but at the same time, I like how you talk. Carpocrates and his son, they were more towards the cynics. They were like what I call, yes. I would like to call, nar- I mean, Gnostics, anarchists without archons, but they were definitely anarchists, right? They were. <laughs> I don't know if they were anarchists, but they, they definitely um, have this model of, I think, wanting to, to like be more like, like um, mimicking the natural order, which they felt that the creator God had. Um, kind of imposed this natural order from what he saw the kind of perfect order being. Um, yeah. That's, and that's what corrupts things and brings reincarnation and suffering is the law. It puts this pressure on our natural right. self and right. we find ourselves reincarnating, sinning, just trapped. Yep. yep. So again, a, a reader of Paul, but I think through a cynic lens rather than a, within a, than a Stoic or a Middle Platonic lens. Although, I mean, he, he also had some Middle Platonism, too. I mean, they all do, but... Indeed, indeed. So fascinating. And for the audience, again, definitely get comparing Christianity, as we were talking before the interview. Uh, sometimes we'll have a scholar like we had Arthur Virch Lewis in his book, American Gnosis. Great book. And, of course, people are emailing. It's $120. It's like uh, scholarly books. But your book, thank God, is... Uh, very affordable and people will get so much use out of it yeah, i think it's like what 30 or 40 dollars something like that and then the and kindle is like even kindle. cheaper yeah so and yeah and you have all the graphs uh the graphs on gnostics who call themselves gnostics the demiurgy the different minimalists it's all set out because like you said uh you wanted you wrote this for students right i did young people who could under, wanted to understand early Christianity. I did. Yes, that's that is why I wrote it. Um, when I was a young person, about eighteen, and first came across these materials, actually through the Gospel of Thomas. Um, in the eighties, there was very little that I could access as a like public person, like not you know like a, I wasn't a scholar. I mean, I was just a kid, and um, I I realized at the time that such a 
such an introduction didn't exist. I couldn't, like, what was I supposed to do? So I, I started just taking classes at university to try to learn, you know, and um, that kind of charted my trajectory. And so I wanted to, as, you know, part of my own career, I wanted to write that book I wish I had had when I was 18. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And that, But I remember your story, what the Gospel of Thomas really moved you, speaking of. It did really move me. I, I read it and I was like, wow. I mean, this was a Jesus that I, that I, uh, I, I really uh, aligned with, if you will. Um, he, he seemed quite different from the Gospels Jesus that I was used to in church. And so I was, was sort of riveted by the whole question about what, why, why hadn't I heard of this text before? Uh, what was it? Um, if it was an, some early text, why wasn't in the canon? And, you know, I had all those questions that everybody has when they first encounter that kind of material. Very much so. And, and of course, the same questions we always have. Why is the God of the Hebrew Bible different than Jesus? Uh, we all have these secret questions growing up, and suddenly the Gnostics uh, kind of answer these questions. And Marcion, of course, you know, yeah. the story of the 42 bears murdering poor those poor <laughs> kids because <laughs> they made fun of bald Elijah. Uh. Stories like that. <laughs> All right. Well, we are getting towards the end. Any last questions that you might have, Vance, or the audience before we move on to the philia substance? Oh, yeah. I, I did have one, which is um, the uh, the Jesuits. Um, uh, what do you think about the Jesuits, you know, within the Catholic Church? And because I have this thing called a, a book called the Dictionary of the Bible, which was, okay. you know, written by them. And they actually um, tell you about the Elohist and the Yahwist um, sections of, uh, you know, Genesis. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, uh, so, so those references are not are not what I'm talking about at all. Those are um, a, a kind of a um, names that scholars have given to the different authors that they think wrote the materials that end up in the Hebrew Bible. So they call talk about an Elohist source, meaning that that particular source of um, when it talks about God uses the term Elohim. Yeah. Or the Yahwist source is a particular uh, source uh, that their stories always talk about the God as Yahweh. And these, these sources were brought together by an editor and, and the Hebrew Bible was formed and, and other sources, but it, that's the general gist of that. That's not what I'm talking about at all. Do you think that they had a suspicion that they were, you know, the El was, you know, the higher God and the Yahweh? Oh, was the higher God? I don't think so. No. Oh. I think what you have is some tribal god by the name of uh, El Shaddai um, uh, and being blended with another sort of tribe god, Yahweh, the god of birth or birthing or something like that. And yeah, they're coming I, together in the stories. I ask because the, the, you know, the Genesis 1 seems like such a benevolent god just creates and it's good. And yeah. you know, that, that'd be more consistent with the God above God. And then the Yahweh, he right away starts in my opinion, <laughs> lying yeah. and, and trying to keep, you know, yeah. Adam Eve from, you know, ascending and knowing and uh, they are being as gods. Vance, you're right that, I mean, the, the, uh, the, the Christians who are reading those texts certainly were noticing those differences, and then they would use those differences then to create some kind of Gnostic uh, a retelling of the story. Yeah, that was or my introduction of, to Gnosticism. Or the myth of Lilith, or yeah, a lot of fun stuff they gave us. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's nothing secret. I mean, April... You know, I went to St. Thomas up the road from you, and the Basilian priest had no problem in my, when I, we'd have to take introductory New Testament classes, like, well, who was the Holy Spirit? And the priest would be, oh, that's a thing in classical times, God's having sex with women and creating demi. They had, they were, you know what I mean? They, scholarship, scholarship. You know? People in my class were like, but... Yeah. I'm old enough. To, we had the Holy Ghost. Oh man, I was scared wow. of the Holy Ghost. <laughs> you come and haunt me. <laughs> oh, that's good. 
Well, awesome. Well, we are at the end of this fascinating conversation. Definitely get comparing Christianities. You will not regret it, and uh, you will enjoy it for the rest of your life. But Vance, thanks for keeping us company and keeping track of the Chitico. Oh, my pleasure. And, um, you know, April, I'm so happy to have you here. <laughs> thanks, uh, fans. Thanks, Miguel. And everybody else in the chat. Education. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Thank, you. thank you for your support. Super chats. Great conversation. And April is always great to have you on. And uh, good luck with the book and thank you. the rest of your research. Thank you. All right, everybody. Thank you. And enjoy the rest of your Friday and uh, your weekend. Take care, everybody. And we yeah. will be talking soon. Take care. This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.